0: Hi,
1: and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Art Scoping is a podcast featuring innovative leaders from the cultural world, ranging from artists to academics to curators. And it's a real pleasure to spend some time today with Raina Lampkins Fielder. Curator of the Souls Grown Deep Foundation since February 2019, as well as a program officer of the foundation's parent organization, the Souls Grown Deep Community Partnership, which supports the communities that gave rise to the 160 artists represented in our collection. Based in Paris, Reyna previously served as artistic director and curator at the Mona Bismarck American Center for Art. She's had a distinguished career as an art historian, museum educator, and curator of 20th century and contemporary American art with a particular focus on African American creative expression. She received her BA in English Literature at Yale University and an MA in the History of Art at Cambridge University, England, as a Mellon Fellow. I met Reina when I was director of the Whitney Museum of American Art and she was our associate director and Helena Rubinstein Chair of Education. During her tenure, she oversaw programming connected with the 2002-2003 exhibition The Quilts of Gee's Bend. Most quilts in that landmark exhibition have long been in the collection of the Souls Grown Deep Foundation. Welcome, Rena. Our listeners should know that we work together at Souls Grown Deep, but we'll try not to spend this half hour complimenting each other.
0: Well, I, wouldn't it be wonderful, actually, uh, if that was how all conversations began?
1: Yeah, in these in these times. I have a <laughs> confession to make, which is, I have an accompaniment in this little studio with me, which is a chihuahua on my lap, as yes! a of the fact that my daughter's still asleep. So I'm taping with Carlos joining us. So you'll hear occasional sighs or beginning to snore, and I'll do my best to modulate that.
0: Well, very nice. I hope to entertain him.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Well, to start with, Reina, you're in Paris, and France is handling the pandemic very differently from the U.S. Give us a sense of how your life has changed over the last few weeks.
0: Yes, well, in fact, with the coronavirus, everything is changing for everyone. And so if you'd asked me this question yesterday, the answer would be a little bit different, as would yours, about how we're handling it. Here in France, there really wasn't a suggestion about going outside. The lockdown, when it finally hit, was quite unquestioning, (laughs) So that is there's not this moment of hesitation or waffling of whether or not I should be out or stay in. Uh, we are very much inside. When I am looking at what is happening in the u s and also people here in paris are are, are looking at the response because uh, so many people have colleagues or friends or family in the United States, there is a little bit of a kind of an incredulity about how some things are being handled. The main problems being uh, sort of the lack of health care for all and job security, and they're so kind of cruelly linked. That's one of the biggest differences uh, in how we're handling it here, in that because there are, already is a certain foundation of security, There's a, one can approach it with more kind of certainty that one can stay in their apartments and there is something, there is a foundational support available to you already, regardless of a, a moment of crisis. So it allows you to actually stay at home with more security and in more comfort because you're less, you're less in a state of additional panic on top of the panic, which is, can I afford healthcare? Can I have access to it? Will I have a job? Am I going to lose my home?
1: And your head of state isn't second-guessing scientific examination of the crisis.
0: Um, no, he is not, because that doesn't make a lot of sense to do at this moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not wearing a mask right now, but I, I will be when I take the dog out for a walk. So. Well, good.
0: I'm, I'm very glad that you are not following certain advice and <laughs> wearing that mask.
1: Right. Turning to museums, they are struggling now, not just because they're closed to the public, But because most of them are operating facilities that have grown in size and in cost significantly, grow or die seem to be the mantra of the last generation. So when museum doors begin to reopen, do you think that audience participation is going to resume as before? Will the pandemic force a rethink?
0: Well, I believe that the pandemic is going to force us to rethink not only success, but all aspects of life and how we move and how we operate. Certainly with museums desire to grow exponentially and that being a sort of barometer of success, we can't really think in the same way anymore when, it's a, when you are basing success on a blockbuster and a kind of fun house numbers. When we come out of this hibernation, of course, there will be some moments where we have to reassess literally how we are physically in space with others. I can imagine that there will be some time uh, where we will perhaps be a little bit reluctant to be in larger crowds, that this idea of being close to each other because of all of these sort of social distancing regulations now that are in place, it will be an interesting thing to Come back to being, to approaching people. And in that way, approaching institutions that are about audience interaction, works of art, and public spaces and social spaces. But perhaps that isn't necessarily the worst thing in the world. Perhaps we now need to begin to think a little bit more about our common goals and where we are situated. I don't think that it will make museums necessarily less international, but perhaps we should acknowledge our surrounding community and dive into that because the locals are also incredibly diverse. Where where they come from, socioeconomically diverse, racially diverse, they are coming from a number of different viewpoints, and perhaps we can begin to acknowledge that a little bit more. We can acknowledge that really special, intimate space between a viewer and a work of art. In a way, perhaps this can also allow museums to be driven less by huge numbers and massive crowds, and more driven by content.
1: In France, a normal thing is kissing on the cheek a couple of times. Right, yes. How does France resume a world in which kissing on the cheeks is no longer countenanced?
0: That is definitely something that will be difficult for all of us here. It's interesting how people are responding to it now. When people would do the bees, when they uh, greet each other by, by kissing, it is always about a kind of movement towards each other and an embrace. And now you watch people if you when you go out into the streets to shop, there is this really interesting dance that people do, the kind of avoidance dance. It's actually quite beautiful if it weren't within such a horrific context. I think for the French, getting back to the bees, because that is just part of their spirit, I think they will be able to get there. I think for the entire planet, getting back to being social, which is just such a natural thing, is going to take a moment, some hesitation. I think it will probably take more than just leaving our houses to then run into the arms of someone else.
1: Well, let's back up. Tell us a bit about your background. Where did you grow up, Raina?
0: I grew up in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh, and right outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in Sewickley, and also in Indianapolis, Indiana. I started out in Pennsylvania, moved to Indiana for sort of junior high school and then back to Pennsylvania for high school. And I kind of consider Pennsylvania my home. My family was one that was rather artistic and incredibly supportive. My mother was a journalist, a TV journalist, and also a poet and quite an amazing orator. My father was a a jazz musician, a saxophonist. And so I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of discussion, where I was watching my mother every night on television, interviewing uh, politicians and entertainers, um, and that conversation then, of course, being brought back into the home. And certainly with my father uh, being a musician, there were lots of musicians around. So I grew up in an environment that really was tailor-made in some ways for the things that I was interested in and what I've ultimately Pursued. I mean, my bedtime stories were, my mother would read poetry to me. She loved Edna St. Vincent Millay as sort of bedtime poetry, and that worked quite well. You know, my father's bedtime stories to me were whistle renditions of like cowboy films and things like this. So, So I kind of grew up in that environment. And I remember my father had a number of books, a number of art books. And as a really young kid, I was absolutely taken with a catalog on, it must have been a retrospective or something, on the work of Hieronymus Bosch. That was like this kind of magic book for me. I must have been about seven years old when I saw my first Hieronymus Bosch in person. And that was that moment when I kind of saw that difference between a work of art on a page and what it was like to see it in real life and what that meant. And that was a really transformative experience. And so from then, it was music and art and literature. When I went to university, I continued with English literature and then transitioned to art history and never looked back.
1: And in some ways, your sensitivity to how a child has a leavened experience through connection with art is helpful even today, because among other multiple activities you've initiated in your last year with Souls Grown Deep, you started a program at an elementary school in rural Alabama in the G's Bend community. Tell us a bit about that and the pandemic's effect on those plans.
0: Well, I've been working with a, an elementary school called ABC Elementary in Alberta, Alabama. I've Been working with them to have a partnership with VTS, which is the Visual Thinking Strategies organization. And their reason for being is to find ways to think and learn through visual arts and to really transform the way that we ask questions, that we think critically. So I'm forging a partnership between VTS and ABC through our community partnership program through Souls Grown Deep so that VTS educators can come into the school and work with the educators there to not only bring artworks to life, but to find ways of looking at those critically that can be applied to other subject areas. Now ABC Elementary is a school that, uh, within a rather impoverished area, that does not have a tremendous amount of resources but an amazing thing about ABC Elementary School is that many of the family members of G's Ben Quilt members, their granddaughters and grandsons or sons and daughters attend that school. So while there may not be a tremendous amount of educational resources that are available to the students there, although they have a really dynamic principal, the resources that they can actually bring from living within a pretty extraordinary community is enormous. That partnership between VTS and ABC was to bring this pride in the materials and the resources that the the community itself provides artistically, but also to bring some much-needed pedagogical assistance to the school as it is re-envisioning itself and developing in a new way. Whilst the VTS program has been shifted to the fall for the school, very kindly, there are a tremendous amount of online resources that could be available to the educators and to the students. Not having access to online tools when the students are back in their own homes because of the lack of connectivity in the community has posed a real problem.
1: A lot of the work of Sol's Deep is about inequity and another one is on the artistic side. There was an Artnet study released by Julia Halpern and Charlotte Burns in late 2018, revealing that artworks by African-American artists were, despite anecdotal, information just 0.26% of the global auction market what are your thoughts about how us museums are addressing the underrepresentation of artists of color in their collections
0: partially us museums are are responding to that lack by contacting us so that is one way i think a lot of the us museums as you mentioned are trying to redress this lack of representation through a lot of temporary exhibitions, which on one hand are incredibly helpful, and yes, we are definitely seeing a greater representation of women, of artists of color, but at the same time, so many of these institutions are not, after the show is over, collecting these artists, including them within their permanent collections, so that we have... So that the audience is really able to engage with these artists at times outside of a normal short exhibition season, as well as curators and academics would have access to these artists. So while in a way it looks good, it looks like there's a lot of activity, that there's a lot of representation of these artists on the walls, the fact of the matter really is they are not really being collected. One of the things that I am responsible for as curator for Souls Deep is for placing artworks from our collection into the permanent collections of museums of note. And part of that is ensuring that not only are the works properly taken care of, but that they will be available to a larger public on the off season, i.e. all the time. In a sense... I'm acting more as a sort of activist curator than a more traditional curator, because what one has to do with the collection transfer program, so much of it is about having conversations with curators, with directors, finding ways that the work that we hold fits within their story of American art or art writ large. I don't believe that I'm a voice for the artist because they have such profound and majestic voices themselves, but rather I'm just allowing institutions in a way to accept these artists, to understand that it's not a risk. It actually is honest and it's a a truer story. It shouldn't be brave, actually. It shouldn't be brave to look at African-American artists from the South and to consider them as being worthy of your collection. That shouldn't be a brave thing, but one has to... Perhaps offer a little bit of assistance to help through that process because everyone has a board or a collections committee. There are lots of different stories that people want to tell within their institutions. And how can we help them to perhaps enlarge in their story?
1: Part of the initial prejudice years ago on the part of museums was that most of the artists that we work with lack any formal training and therefore were seen as undeserving of being among. Artists in the leading collections, and that's really turned around to acknowledge that training is varied among even the most successful artists like Ai Weiwei. Is it still around? Is that prejudice still in evidence? Is it declining to the point where it's less relevant than ever?
0: I think that prejudice is still around. I, I think I don't think it's necessarily declining. I think there is an acceptance. Perhaps this isn't a spirit of inclusion, but one can include someone in the conversation who has not had, you know, formal art education. I went to a symposium a few months ago, and one of the questions asked of this artist was specifically about this, was about all of these master's programs and now PhD programs for artists. And she mentioned that her dealer had suggested perhaps she should get a doctorate, she should get a PhD because she felt that that could open even more doors for this incredibly accomplished artist. That need for um, you know, that stamp of approval, that diploma still has meaning, but I think we're becoming a little bit more open to the fact that it's not absolutely everything and also acknowledging the fact that it is the art world that demands a certain sort of pedigree whereas we don't inquire necessarily of a novelist, where he or she went to school. You know, some of my favorite musicians, I don't know where they got their training from, and I'm not necessarily interested in it, but we kind of demand it of the artist. It's a meaningless category to me, where they went to school, how they went to school, if they went to school, they could have gone to the best art school in the nation, and they're a terrible artist. So it doesn't necessarily mean everything.
1: Reina, just back to how our process unfolds, even though museums have closed their doors to the public, we're still planning acquisitions with several museums, and you work closely with our director of collections, Scott Browning, in that planning. Give us a sense of how it's happening, how it's working, even in the face of the pandemic.
0: So the interest itself in acquiring work, that hasn't necessarily slowed down. Schedules, however, have been changed a bit. And as I like to refer to this time, this quarantine time, I call it quarantine So that kind of means that everyone is processing. We're all processing our moment. So that has perhaps changed the conversations that we're having ever so slightly uh, with these institutions, but it hasn't lessened interest at all.
1: Our board of directors has the responsibility of overseeing our activities. And our board chairman, Mary Margaret Petway, is a third generation Gee's Bend quilt maker. You've spent ample time with her in Alabama. How would you summarize her aspirations for our community partnership, which you serve as a program officer?
0: I think that her aspirations for the community partnership is the same aspiration that we all have at Souls Grown Deep, which is to look at the source of the disenfranchisement and help to, whether it be strengthen the infrastructure of it, to provide certain services or expertise, or to suggest other organizations with which to collaborate. The aspiration really is about partnering with communities, setting something in motion, and allowing it to shine to really listen to the needs and desires and capabilities of the various communities that we are working with through the community partnership. At least for me, the aspiration is about acknowledging and enabling.
1: Reina, among your other duties, you lead our internship program, which places undergraduates in museums that have acquired artworks from us. Would you share an anecdote about how the program has had an impact on the lives of those involved?
0: I am incredibly proud of our internship program. Um, I think all of us or many of us within the art world benefited from internship opportunities in the past. That is a gateway into museums, certainly into the art world. One of the things that I love about our internship program, one among many things, is the fact that we really are working with students, undergraduate students of color, who are coming from a variety of disciplines, but are interested in the work of cultural institutions. One of our first interns, Achille Davies, who interned at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, she came into that internship as a sociology major, but with a curatorial sensibility, You know, in a very short time, she was the co-curator of the Souls Brown Deep exhibition that was at the Philadelphia Museum. As important as it is to expand your network, to get professional development experience, it is equally important in encouraging self-discovery for the intern you now have a sense of really what you want to do or what you don't want to do. It can become a much more nuanced conversation with yourself about what your future will be. Achille said that, you know, one of the things that was really important for her was that she was able to have a renewed appreciation of the South. She herself was raised in the South and then has spent time in Philadelphia and in the North, not assuming that her kind of curatorial lens would pivot back towards where she came from. For her, this curatorial movement, working with these artists, being in the museum, became something very personal. It became revelatory in a sense. It allowed her to not only expand her mind and what she was doing, but also to offer very particular insights into how the work was displayed, how it was communicated to the audience, and also that real, having a real feeling about artistic production in the South again. One of the things we do do in our internship program is we take our interns on a trip to our facilities in Atlanta and on studio visits with some of our artists. And having that personal interaction with those artists as well, you kind of realize that you're not just working with these incredible art objects, but you're also upholding and communicating a community of artistic thought that is just now being understood.
1: What's very rewarding for all of us, from our board to our staff to our interns, and to the museum colleagues we work with is this alloy of a recognition of artistic talent together with a social activist imperative. And that is so unusual in the art world. And it's part of what makes it distinctive to be in this organization.
0: Well, I don't think we could be any other way. And I think that's important for everyone. I mean, somehow we begin to separate doing social good (laughs) from... Participating in the art world. And that I find quite curious because it seems like the script has been rewritten. It was much more about sort of a, a sort of social interaction as opposed to this separate market world and everything else. And for us, because of just the nature of the makeup of our artists in many respects, it would be almost irresponsible for us to not do both.
1: Yeah, there's an interesting way that we look at the art world here in New York or in L.A. or other major art centers, that artists and curators are often disaffected by what they conceive of as the the engine of capitalism that drives the art world. And Mm. there's a kind of remove that has to take place, a kind of a social distancing, if I (laughs) I say that, between practitioners and artists from the boards and the sources of authority and governance and support. And in our case, there's simply no, there's no barrier, there's no gap among all of these different constituents. We are all of a piece. Absolutely. You are based in Paris, which was intentional on our part to recruit you because it struck me and the board that for the artists that we advocate, their recognition abroad is just as important as their recognition stateside. Just as we close out, I'm curious what you're finding out about the appetite of European museums and foundations to acquire and display artworks from Souls Grown Deep.
0: I have been absolutely encouraged by the response from our European colleagues here. It's very interesting. I mean, it's, their, their understanding of our artists and of that region is still evolving, but in many ways, so is it in the United States. I think here in Europe, they have a slightly different take on our artists. And again, Europe itself is very diverse, so how our artists are received in England is a slightly different reception than in France or elsewhere. By and large, however, I think they are looking at our artists as this tremendous discovery. And of course they must be a part of the overall conversation when they're looking at American art. European institutions, as well, usually have a much closer relationship with the academy. So, scholarship and collecting and display are a little bit more linked here than they are in the States. So, many of the institutions here are looking at our artists not as like these outliers, as some might think, in the States, but more as part of an overall intellectual conversation that can take place. They're kind of already inserted for them. Into the canon, and they're surprised that they haven't been a part of the canon. So they're much more flexible in what they are assuming is American artistic production. Our artists fit very much into their idea around sort of contemporary art or modern art or art coming from the United States. They're not as hung up on the self taught issue, particularly not in France, which kind of has art plus and it's very. It gives self-taught its own kind of precious placement. So they're not as concerned with with that. And I think in some ways, they're much more interested in these artists that they haven't maybe seen before in real life and um, the conversations that can take place within that work. I'm so heartened by the fact that with many European, European institutions, they're looking at our artists as those artists telling a story in a different way, a way that's more about abundance, Than about the impoverished environment in which they were creating the work.
1: Raina, thank you for making time for this conversation. How can our listeners best follow what you're doing online?
0: Everyone can certainly go to the Souls Grown Deep website, and there you can get a tremendous amount of information about all of our artists, uh, as well as the initiatives that we have in our foundation and community partnership areas. You can also join us on our Instagram page, which is at Souls Grown Deep Foundation. You can also follow some of my uh, professional and personal escapades at my Instagram, which is at RainAlf1, R A I N A L F 1. There will be some crossover between <laughs> the Souls Grown Deep Instagram and my own, but certainly you can get a sense of where we're going. We're an incredibly active organization. So we're trotting about the world, not so much at the moment, but um, we certainly try to share that with everyone.
1: Well, thank you so much, Raina, for making time. We'll look forward to following your escapades, but also your accomplishments as curator of the Souls Grown Deep Foundation and as program officer of the Souls Grown Deep Community Partnership. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Art Scoping.